This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, welcome to the Politics Without the Boring Bits podcast. That's the first time I've ever said that because you might have noticed I'm not Matt Chorley. I'm Patrick Maguire. I'll be with you on the podcast all week while Matt is away. And while it's parliamentary recess, MPs are away, there is a lot of news about and we had a lot to discuss on today's podcast. We're going to be talking about Keir Starmer's relationship with Joe Biden. Is it wise to be love-bombing a president who looks bluntly like he might be losing the plot and certainly losing the election. But before then, it's time for today's columnist panel. I'm speaking to Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purves about why the Tories are losing rural England and whether state schools are failing our brightest kids. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Yes, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester join me. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Patrick. And Libby, how are you doing? Good morning, fine. Good. Glad, glad to have you both here. It's a busy, busy day in politics, despite, despite notionally being the parliamentary recess. And there's a lot to talk about, so let's get straight into it. Now, it's been a long uh, political truth that the countryside votes Conservative in 2019 96 of the 100 most rural constituencies voted Tories, uh, uh, voted for the Tories, uh, but nothing certain these days, according to new polling that's making waves in Westminster today. Labour are now up to 37% in the countryside, ahead of the Conservatives, who are on 34 Now, if that's how the election turned out, the seats of Jeremy Hunt, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Therese Coffey would all be under threat. The polling was done by Salvation for the Country, Land and Business Association, which represents thousands thousands of farmers, landowners and rural businesses. The president of the Country Land and Business Association, Victoria Vivian, spoke to Times Radio Breakfast. Well, it's an interesting poll, isn't it? I think it, it, what it really tells us is that um, our constituencies feel politically invisible. And um, I think they're also sending out a message that our votes are not a lifetime gift. We expect them to be earned like everybody else's uh, votes. So um, I think an interesting addition to that is what those uh, people polled feel about the respect for our communities. And that was a race to the bottom, really, with 28% of those polled feeling that the Labour Party respects or understands our community and only 25% thinking that the Conservative Party do. So a lot of work for them, I think, to pick up any votes at all. Now, Libby, I hate to break the fourth wall, but Rachel's in the studio with me and you are quite literally out in the sticks. So I should defer to you on this. <laughs> does this sound right? Yes, of course it does. They, they should really worry about the rural Conservative vote because there's no longer any of the sense there used to be that the Tories are about stability and food security and tradition. Um, I mean, our own MP was Liz Truss's best mate, Therese Coffey, Environment Secretary, who didn't defend the coast against the damaging pylon and concreting that the power companies want uh, didn't seem very energetic against the filth of Anglian water. Um, th- there is a sense that, that, that there's, there's, there's less respect around 
And I think it's not just farmers, it's, it's ordinary people in the countryside as well. You know, a feeling of, of it's, it's all a big shrug. You know, look at, the, for, for example, schools in rural areas, and especially rural coastal areas, you know, and the, the continuing impoverishment and decline there. And yet, you know, endless boasting about how London schools are better and better and everything's better and better. The cities are better. People talk about the north, they talk about the metropolis, they talk about London. They don't really politically talk about the countryside. It's kind Kind of embarrassing and the conservative party which which used to have a sort of you know there was a sense of stability about it appreciating the countryside it just doesn't have anymore you know it's there's a big shrug and i think they may lose a lot of seats but the question for me rachel is this i mean the polling is the polling and there comes a point where you can't really ignore or question it anymore this polling suggests the labor party will be the big beneficiary but there is something about it for me that doesn't quite smell right you know will the Labour Party be the beneficiary in all of these seats or could we see you know the Greens and the Liberal Democrats reaping the benefit because in a lot of these places they are still the voters there are still sort of instinctively suspicious of voting Labour but might turn to other parties who are opposed to the Tories. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. What's interesting is it's the all sections of the electorate seem to be turning against the Conservatives. Mm. I think there'll be quite a lot of tactical voting at the election. Um, but it's so fascinating listening to Libby talking like that because there was a lot of focus on the left-behind voters in the North and the Midlands. But actually now it's the rural voters who feel left behind and ignored. Um, and we did some focus groups for the Health Commission in all different parts of the country. So so we did Blackpool, Stevenage, uh, Isha and Walton. So three quite different constituencies, different demographics. Um, and all of them just had this view, it can't be worse than what we've got now. So there's this sense of that time for a change and no section of the electorate is safe for the Tories or for any party actually to take for granted. Well, exactly. That's the key point. That's the key point. You know, Labour's trash is make all the time. It's why they're sort of not as optimistic as you might expect, because it's the extreme volatility of voters. You know, voters have turned against the Tories, but they could just as easily turn back to the Tories or somebody else if they are disappointed. I mean, Libby, I'm interested in this point about... <laughs> Well, the somebody uh, else sorry, is very on. important, the, the Liberals, uh, the, the, the Lib Dems, you see. I think that the somebody else is, is interesting because very often people will turn towards the uh, Lib Dems, not least because they tend to have such cracking good councillors. You know, on a very local level, it is very often your local Lib Dem councillor in a rural area who will stand up for you. Uh, uh, you, you know, you are in Suffolk Coastal to raise coffee seat. If not to raise coffee... Who is going to win that seat? Because I can't imagine it's the Labour Party in, in Suffolk Coastal. Who who wins if not Therese Coffey at the next election? Well, if they, I don't know who the Lib Dem is, but if they have a really good one, I think uh, I think there could be a great deal of support there. I mean, it it is always they are always second here. You know, Labour does tend to come third in in these uh, coastal rural constituencies. But I think it, it depends on the candidate. And I say I haven't yet uh, uh, studied <laughs> studied the the field, but I will do as the year goes on. It's interesting though. Starmer has been really trying to overtly woo voters in places like Suffolk, Coast, mm. Suffolk Coastal. So, for example, that speech on the National Trust, Labour is trying to position itself as the party of sort of small-c conservative decency in a funny way. Um, and it's sort mm. of... He's trying to uh, get those voters... It's, it's a deliberate strategy, I think, to present themselves as a party of stability, um, which I'm interested, Libby used that word, that sort of stability tradition in a funny way, uh, while the Conservatives are the radicals, the dangerous, the revolutionaries who've tossed everything up in the air. And of course, a lot of farmers who may have voted for Brexit are now paying a price and suffering the consequences of that with um, the loss of um, grants, but also uh, imports and things like that. What do you think, Libby? Yeah, I, th I think I think Rachel's absolutely right. I think I think the, uh, uh, but of course Starmer loses and you know, late Labour rather loses image uh, every time there is some particularly loony bit of, of gender statement, gender politics statement, or something like that uh, within his senior team. So it is it's this desperate creeping across a, a polished floor in slippers carrying a Ming vase, isn't it? It's very easy to frighten people off Labour. It is less easy to frighten people off the. Dems simply because nobody quite knows what they would actually do. So I think uh, I think it, Labour Labour has a long way to.
to go still in a lot of rural constituencies and, and that were those words stability and tradition do tend to come into it and the Tories have basically thrown away any sense that they're anything to do with stability and tradition. They're to do with big money and quarrelling among themselves like rats in a sack. I just speak as an outsider here. Well, it's interesting you talk about the Labour Party having work to do to convince rural voters that they are on their side. You know, from your vantage point, Libby, would you say the fact that, well, Keir Starmer is actually from a semi-rural background, he's from uh, you know, the, the wilds of, uh, of Sur- Hurst Green in Surrey, which is very much semi-rural. <coughs> Steve Reid, who's the Shadow Environment Secretary, uh, is from Croydon, which, unless you're about 200 years old, is no one's definition of rural. Is, is the sense that Labour is a party of the city a problem for it in, in seats like yours? I think politics is seen as a thing of the city, to be honest. I mm. think, uh, I mean, the, the Conservatives used to have a bit of a sense of being the shires and so on. Though, of course, a lot of people in the shires absolutely detest the uh, the upper <laughs> the upper crust of the shires. You know, you've got to consider that as well. But I think, uh, no, it, it's uh, it, politics... Politics and political arguments are seen as something distant. And actually, in a way, any party which genuinely seemed to be reaching out interestedly and valuing farming, valuing the countryside, um, valuing the people who live in the countryside, uh, will will do quite well out of it. I should just mention one other thing, that there may be, after the lockdown, quite a lot of urban people who now are, have transferred and become actually voters in some of these rural areas. Um, you certainly see this in East Suffolk. You know, some people have actually genuinely moved out and probably now are voters here who were not before. And that, that will have an interesting effect. That's Quite a, really a small one, point. but it, there's, a, there's a ripple in it. No, no, it is, it is. And presumably these are sort of older people who are much likelier to vote. Anyway, Paul in Wiltshire has just gone in touch on the text. As someone who lives in the countryside, there is no <laughs> doubt that farmers and all those whose work relates to farming, grain merchants, farm machinery supplies, etc., etc., feel they have been utterly stuffed by their Conservative MP who supported Brexit, the blatant lies about how it would benefit agriculture are now exposed. Interesting, despite what I'm hearing from both of you and indeed from listeners, that the polling is still quite narrow. The Tories have a, it seems, a much higher ceiling, uh, or sorry, higher floor, lower ceiling, whatever you might want to call it, definitely a lower floor, higher floor. Anyway, it's a floor and a ceiling. Whatever it is, the Tories are at 34%, which is much higher than their polling nationally. Uh, Now, let's move on. Let's go across the Atlantic to talk about Joe Biden. Last week, we saw the president snap back at remarks over his memory loss. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. That was Joe Biden speaking after a special prosecutor had said his memory was too weak to undergo a trial over accusations he kept classified documents he oughtn't have done from his vice presidency. Not only that, by the way, on a separate occasion, he appeared briefly to forget the name Hamas. There is some movement, and I don't want to, I don't want to, well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement, there's been a response from the opposition but um it, uh, yes i'm sorry from hamas now rachel how old is too old to run a country and is joe biden that i don't think it's about age at all um so you know you think of somebody like joan bakewell who's mm. 90 uh i remember bill... regular on this station exactly no i remember yeah. bill deeds when he was w- as writing as a journalist well into his 90s uh i don't think it's about age it's about whether uh, your capacity and just listening to that it's excruciating isn't it and to have the American president can't, is muddling up the Egyptian and Mexican president. He can't, you know, muddling up Macron and Mitterrand. Um, it's it's not good. And I think, but I don't think that's to do with age per mm. se. It's to do with uh, mm. mental capacity. What do you think, Libby? I think some of it is to do with age because you can talk about Bakewells and you can talk about journalists, you can talk about all of us kind of powering merrily on through our 70s towards the 80s, whatever, Uh, but actually running a country is different. I think energy does deplete 
and I think the depleting of energy, that also accounts for some of the forgetting of words. Um, and I think people do, not over 70, you know, I think 70 to 80 is fine, 70 is a new 50, all that, but 80 and 80 plus up towards you know the late 80s, you fall out of touch with new ways and views and needs. Uh, it's true that a good 75 is a lot better than a mediocre midlifer or a callow youngster with no history or balance, but I do think that running a country, that, that incredible pressure of issues and events uh, is, you know, energy does deplete, no question. After 80, it just really does. You uh, also need that sort of flexibility of mm. intellect as well as of uh, physical uh, mm. bodies. So Staying th- in I, touch with how things yeah, are. And I yeah. think one of the reasons Biden may have misjudged the situation in Gaza is that he's slightly stuck in a previous view of a, di- of, a, of, a, of a previous Israeli era when he was Secretary of State, when things were very different. Uh, it wasn't Netanyahu in charge. It wasn't such a sort of right-wing Israeli government. And it's almost as if he's stuck in a previous era. That's interesting. And, and yeah. the most brutal illustration of that, of course, was him referring to President Nasser of Egypt, or rather of Mexico the, the other day, uh, who has not been present for a, a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk about this later in about 10 minutes with uh, some Labour people and some US Democrats, whether, you know, why Joe Biden and Bidenomics isn't working when the US economy is going gangbusters. You know, I think, really you know, head for the simplest explanation. It's probably because voters, as all the US polling shows, are looking at him and thinking, this guy is, you know, clearly <laughs> clearly a very, very elderly man, uh, which is uh, which is a big problem for the Democrats, of course. I mean, we should say in the interest of fairness, by the way, Donald Trump is, is 77 and he's not in the rudest of health either. Absolutely, but there's an energy to him. Mm. I'm just, you know, you imagine the TV debates between those two. You think of uh, Trump prowling around Hillary Clinton, how Trump is going to absolutely make mincemeat of Biden if, if he's not careful. So there's a kind of brutal energy to Trump um, that's frightening, in my view. But the, the danger is that sort of Biden, for, almost through vanity, he's hanging in. He thinks he can then be the only person who can beat Trump. Uh, and that actually he then lets Trump in. What do you think, Libby? I think I, I agree with that. I mean, they, uh, I'm, I think the, the, the big energy of Trump it largely consists of just sort of shouting out his opinions very, very loudly um, and, and not listening. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's... I, I, do th- I do think Biden is worrying and he shouldn't be hanging on in there and the Democrats should really be thinking very hard about how, you know, how to find somebody at least slightly nearer to midlife. Um, because he he is not sounding convincing at all, and and it's it's quite alarming, the thought of this great brute Trump, you know, as against this this old old man. It feels weird. Now, are state schools failing our children? The Sunday Times yesterday told the story of Manor Chima, at seventeen years old. She has an IQ of one hundred and sixty one. For context, that's as high as Albert Einstein's was thought to be. She's now studying for twenty eight A levels which follows her 34 GCSEs. Where does she find the time? But Manor says her achievements have come in spite of the schools she's attended, not because of them. Delighted to say she joins me now. Morning, Manor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, let's start with your background at school. Tell us about your experience so far. Really interesting in what you say there about your achievements coming in spite of the schooling you received and not because of it. What do you mean by that? I think from a very young age, my parents recognised that I had a different intellectual capacity to the rest of my peers. And the school system were never really supportive at all of this. Um, I was never offered any chance for acceleration, any chance for um, extracurricular development, even curricular development. I always felt very othered from the rest of my peers. I was put to the side and given extra questions to do in the hope that they would keep me engaged long enough for the seven hours of a school day to finish. Finish. And um, this just, I always felt really disappointed from a very young age. I felt that um, nothing was being done to support my education in the way that it could have been. Uh, you're now calling for more support for gifted pupils in UK state schools. What might that include? I think 
it can be it can range from a wide variety of things depending on the student but i think just that um special educational needs are considered very deeply in the current um education system and they're given tutorials they're given um videos they're given parental support teacher support i think that gifted students need to be treated exactly the same way i think that there needs to be a greater consideration of the curriculum that we provide to the gifted and talented and as well as not just the educational side of it but just so and emotional counselling as well. Now, Manor, I want to bring in Rachel Sylvester, who chaired the Times' Education Commission. It's so interesting to hear what you say, Manor, because actually what we found with the Education Commission was at both ends of the spectrum, so both the most gifted weren't being stretched enough, but also the children who were less academic were being failed by the system, and a third of them actually don't get any GCSEs at all, effectively. So do you, what, um, how have you managed to do these extra A-levels? Have you basically been teaching yourself, or have you had special tutoring? Um, no, I don't. I don't really believe in the uh, idea of tutoring because in the education system, I've never been the type of person to sit and learn a lot from somebody lecturing at me for hours. I tend to just read at my own pace. And I think that's why I decided to do so many extra GCSEs and A-levels because reading and absorbing content has never been much of an issue for me. Well, I was going to say, Manor, in the nicest possible way, you are clearly incredibly <laughs> exceptional you know, you, you don't seem to need much extra support. What sort of what useful lessons can we draw from from your case when you are off the charts, industrious and intelligent? I think that I am 17 now, but I suffered at the hands of this education system for nine years before that. I nine-year-old me did not she needed support in the mm. way that 17-year-old me doesn't and in a formative stage of my education I lacked the support that I needed I lacked emotional support and I lacked educational support and I think that we need to start catching we need to um, find these gifted and talented children and recognize their talent very early in order to nurture and enrich them so that they don't have to feel so different and frustrated with the system at this young age well Libby Manor makes a really interesting case there, and it was interesting in particular in her use of the word special educational needs, which have a very specific meaning, as we all understand it. But would you say British state schools are neglecting their duties to support gifted children, just as they do children with learning difficulties? I, I think it's fascinating, and I think Rachel's absolutely right in, in what she says, that both ends of the spectrum is a problem. But I can tell you from experience that the accelerating people within a school, within classes, has its problems. I was in a French school where the system was rather ahead of Britain for a while, and then at the age of 12, I was in South Africa where the system was well behind. And I was at 12 in a class full of 14 rising 15-year-old girls uh, who were, had a whole different set of interests to mine mainly boys and uh, Cliff Richard and Elton and, and Elvis Presley. And I felt really othered and alienated by being in among girls who were not at my sort of mental age. So it's quite difficult, the whole business of accelerating within schools. And um, I greatly admire her for doing so much reading on her own, just really getting on with it. Rachel, yeah, final word from yeah, you. Yeah, the other thing I think that could be a solution here is technology. Um, because we came across some sort of AI uh, learning tools that allows children to go at their own speed. And there was one primary school kid uh, who um, I heard about who'd been at GCSE level for maths because the AI managed to just teach beyond, they, it was completely personalised individual learning. Manoor, I mm. wonder if you think that could be a solution. So you, you are literally following your own path as far as you want to go. I think that's a really brilliant idea. I think that um, children who are gifted and talented tend to work at their own pace and they appreciate being given advice and support from people who are willing to adapt to their pace. That was Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purves. Remember you can read both of them in The Times every week. Just pick up a copy of the paper or head to thetimes.co.uk to pick up a digital subscription. Up next, Keir Starmer and Joe Biden. A match made in heaven? Lots of people are starting to question that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. Yes, just before Joe Biden's inauguration in January 2021, the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, set out his optimistic vision for a new relationship between Britain and America. And our relationship with the US matters enormously to me. I'm anti-Trump, but pro-American. And I'm incredibly optimistic about the new relationship we can build with President Biden. America is our most important security ally. So it's crucial that we have a strong future together. Three years on and Joe Biden's administration has provided Labour with inspiration for its electoral strategy, economic agenda, or what's left of it, and its approach to global affairs. But while the polls suggest Keir Starmer is on course to becoming Prime Minister, for Biden it's looking, well, rather less promising. Yet it still seems that the Labour leader is keeping the president close. Last month, a small group of his parliamentary candidates took a trip to the United States to see what they might learn about winning elections and running governments from President Biden and his Democrats. On that trip was Kirsty McNeil, a charity executive and former advisor to Gordon Brown during his time in Number 10, who is running for Labour in Scotland. And Kirsty joins me now. Morning, Kirsty. Good morning. Hello. Good morning, Kirsty. Now, Hi. tell me, what did you get up to in the US? Well, we encountered lots of things that are quite alien and quite different. So we met lots of different um, candidates and strategists, advisors, posters from across the country. And there was a few things that were quite different, obviously, about US politics, the scale of the money, mm. the centrality of abortion, the presence of television advertising for candidates. I don't think any of us would like to see that repeated or imported here. But we also saw some things that were really quite familiar. I mean, the shape of the two races that we might face this autumn are quite similar in that you have in the president and obviously in Keir Starmer, two very serious, very experienced policymakers and people who are used to running things, facing off against movements that are sort of populist and norm shattering and willing to run a culture war strategy. So there was some that was very familiar, whilst also some things that were obviously very different. So you were in Washington and Virginia to learn from Democrats sort of on Capitol Hill on the front line of, you know, what they would see as the fight against Trumpism. And an interesting question that I've been sort of chewing over in the Times recently is that much of Labour's economic policy or what's left of it, was predicated on the assumption that Biden had found a winning formula, you know, subsidising green industry, what we now call Bidenomics, his Inflation Reduction Act, creating lots of jobs in states that won Donald Trump the election and won Joe Biden the election, the Rust Belt. But weirdly, given how much money he's ploughed into those states, he's not looking like he's going to be rewarded electorally for it. So what, what did you learn about about that sort of thing when you got there. Why isn't Bidenomics paying dividends and what can Labour learn from that? 
So this is the great mystery, because I don't think anyone would doubt that the policy record of the president is extraordinary. So the great mystery is why is he not receiving more political dividend for it? And bear in mind that incumbents are struggling politically everywhere right across the G7. But one thing that I have learned from it is actually maybe the lesson should be going in the other direction, because I think Keir has really seized on something with mission driven government, the, the old days, it's quite an old fashioned way of doing politics that you use the bully pulpit, you use television advertising, you try and get your message out there through an air war. Actually, Keir's learned that mission driven government will mean that everyone has to come together at local and state level in the US kind of uh, analogy. But also here in the UK, we need to have partnerships that go across all sorts of different sectors and all sorts of different levels of government. During the Rutherglen by-election, I met someone who was from an NHS family who was tearing her hair out, saying, actually, I know what I want to uh, prescribe to my patients. I want to prescribe them nights out at the Blantyre Miners Welfare, because they knew that provision of healthcare these days is not simply about what happens in hospitals or at the GPs. It's also about how connected are we socially? Like, how are we dealing with uh, loneliness, with mental ill health, with addiction in our communities? If you want to, as Keir does, half violence against women and girls, that's a whole of society effort. That's not just something that can get done at the federal level in the US or here from our very, very centralised UK state here in this country. So I've taken two lessons, really. One, that Keir's on to something with mission-driven government, but also that the, the people who are doing well in the United States are candidates who are not just on people's side, but by their side, that every single day they're in dialogue with their electorate and they are doing things not in a tokenistic gimmicky way but they are shadowing people when they are doing their shifts gutting fish or doing their shifts at the sawmill or doing their shifts at the fire station the candidates who are doing well in trump country and the elected members who are still holding on to support in their districts have this very very rooted what i'd call the politics of the porch that they're not primarily running an air war it's based on very very deep relationships right at home in the district. Was there a part of you as you were meeting these successful Democrats that thought, God, we could do with meeting some Republicans here as well, given the likelihood that Donald Trump will get back in? Obviously, you know, Kirsty, as accomplished as you are, you'll be landing on the backbenches for the first couple of uh, couple of months of your tenure as an MP at least. But did you come away thinking the Labour Party in the UK needs to do more to brace itself for a, for a Donald Trump win? So clearly, and David Lammy's already doing that, right? So David Lammy is across the aisle building relationships, as you'd expect. The thing that is um, the, the sort of source of optimism that some of these strategists had for us was at the moment, because there is not actually a kind of Republican nominee nailed on, although that is obviously very, very likely to be former President Trump, that as it becomes clearer what the choice is, that it's a choice between these two very different propositions for the country, it will cease to be a referendum on the current presidency. So we had a lot of, well, certainly not complacent, we had a lot of more optimistic reads from pollsters that actually things will uh, look up for the president as it becomes clearer that the option is going back to the kind of key chaos and division of the Trump years. So they plus not at all complacent, rightly so. There is a bit of a sense that the polls at the moment aren't that reflective of what will be the case come November. Well, that's really, really interesting to hear that. And I know there are senior Labour strategists who agree with you as they stare down the barrel of a Trump presidency. They agree too that once US voters really clock that it's Donald Trump who is definitely against Joe Biden, that they might reconsider. Kirsty McNeil, charity executive, former advisor to Gordon Brown, now standing as Labour's candidate in Midlothian. Thanks very much for joining us to talk about your trip to see what Labour could learn from the Democrats in the US, or indeed vice versa. Because as Labour hugged the Democrats close... A special counsel has said President Biden had willfully retained top-secret files but wouldn't be convicted by a jury as he is a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. The president angrily rejected those comments. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, wasn't any of their damn business. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. 
I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. But he later made another gaffe, not ideal when you're trying to defend yourselves against claims of a poor memory. He confused Mexico and Egypt. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. Now, I spoke to the American journalist and author of Where Have All the Democrats Gone? A very aptly titled book, John B. Judas. And I asked him whether 2024 is a good year to be a Democrat. Uh, no. <laughs> it's, it's a very perilous year to be a, a, a Democrat. We, we have a very vulnerable uh, candidate uh, for, for president, and he could lose. Well, in recent weeks, we've seen President Biden angrily rejecting that report from the special counsel that stated his memory was so poor he couldn't even recall when his beloved son Bo died or when his term as vice president ended. We've also seen a few Biden blunders or what you may call senior moments on the campaign trail. Is is this the thing that's making him such a vulnerable candidate or is it down to the policy? Uh, I th- I think it's a combination of the two, but the uh, his uh, appearance in public is very important. I, I mean, in, in the United States, the president is vested with being both the prime minister and the king. Goes back to our constitution. You know, he's been pretty good as a prime minister. I mean, he's got a lot of legislation across that nobody thought he could could do. But uh, as a public figure. He's very lacking, and there's the lapses of memory, and and he just doesn't he doesn't look very good. Is the consensus view, the emerging popular view of the American electorate, simply that he is too old to be president? Yeah, I mean that's partly it, but you know Trump makes his mistakes too in public and uh, gets things mixed up. You know the. Obama being the prior president, according to him at once, but but he seems much more energetic. So it is, it's partly age, but I think it's age uh, reinforced by how, how Biden appears when he ends in public. I mean, Trump is very clever about picking out the weaknesses of uh, candidates. Crooked Hillary, you know, was what he called Hillary Clinton, and he calls Biden Sleepy Joe. And uh, sometimes he does appear as if he's been up for 36 hours and is just struggling to stay awake. Well, even in that press conference at the White House when he was trying to energetically rebut the allegations that he was too old or infirm or elderly or losing his marbles, he managed to mistake the president of Egypt for the president of Mexico. So it was hardly hardly the firm rebuttal that he'd hoped for. Yeah, I know. I mean, everybody knows that Nasser is the president of Egypt, right? <laughs> you might be showing your own age there, uh, yeah, John. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, policy. The immigration stuff is coming to haunt him. He did several things at the beginning of his presidency that really did open up the borders and led to a huge increase uh, in uh, undocumented migrants uh, crossing the border. And they put a strain on uh, city finances and even in the north, in New York and Chicago, as well as in cities in the the, uh, southwest. And that's that's become a big issue. And they're trying to backpedal and change their position on that. But that that's going to be an issue. Uh, inflation is going to be a big issue, even though presidents have a difficult time doing anything either to encourage it or to discourage it. I, I think actually he's handled it pretty well, but the high interest rates that the Fed put in in order to uh, cool the economy have affected a lot of home buyers and car buyers and people like that. So it's, it's still it's going to be a big issue in November. Well, you mentioned the economy, and that's the reason we're having this discussion about Joe Biden and UK politics today, because the Labour Party, who have profited electorally from the conservative handling of the economy here, similar story, high interest rates, high inflation, have looked to Joe Biden and have looked to what we now call Bidenomics, his big money inflation reduction act, 
as the inspiration for their own economic policies. But they don't seem to be paying electoral dividends for Joe Biden, do they? Yeah, and I, I read that comparison of Starmer and, and Biden, and I, I think it's wrongheaded because, look, uh, Starmer's running against an incumbent. So it sounds to me, and I, you know, obviously I'm over here and not over there, that uh, he benefits by being a bland you know, making the electorate focus on on the weaknesses of his opponent. He's in the similar position to Biden in 2020. So whether those kind of policies will help him once in office is, you know, one question. Whether they'll help him get elected is another. And I suspect, the you know, again, the blandery is the better for him. Just the way Biden was in 2020. I mean, I'd be hard pressed to tell you what policies Biden espoused in 2020 when he was running, because it didn't matter. Everybody was focused on the on uh, what was wrong with the incumbent. And, I, you know, I think, again, you have a similar kind of situation in uh, Britain. You've written a book, John, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Is the answer that they've been abandoned by the white working class? And how can they address the economic anxieties of those crucial voters? Well, you know, they've done their best to do that with the economic programs, but again, it's it's very hard to do. I, in the last two years, Biden is not going to be able to get anything through the House and the Senate. This election is going to be like the last few elections we've had, where the election's going to be decided by who is seen as crazier on the uh, on the extremes. I mean, whose who's party's extremes become more salient to voters? And Biden is going to get a lot of independent and, you know, including working class votes uh, if Trump appears again as a crazy. But uh, if not, I think he I think he's going to have a lot of trouble. And it's hard for me to see how he can reverse that in the next eight months or so. We should talk about working class votes because the Labour Party in this country has agonised endlessly and endlessly over how to win back its traditional supporters in our equivalent of the Rust Belt, the Red Wall. So, John, listening to you there, with all your expertise on the health of the Democrats, that health check for the Democrats, you don't paint a particularly pretty picture. You don't necessarily say the party is in rude health, quite the opposite as an electoral force. Are you surprised to hear that Biden is such an inspiration, such a lodestar for social Democrats in this country? Yes, I am, because, you know, I think that they uh, underestimate uh, the degree to which Biden won in 2020 because of his opponent, not not because of himself. I mean, he was locked in, uh, in, in his uh, cellar during the campaign because of the pandemic, so he didn't have to go out and display himself a lot before voters. And he could do things that were very heavily uh, scripted. I think he's going to have uh, trouble this, this time because he is going to have to go out and uh, campaign. We've just heard about the current, not particularly rude health, of the Democrats. And the Tories have long criticised Labour for following their example. If you remember, Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor last year, launched her doctrine of Securonomics. It was a conscious imitation of Joe Biden's, well, Bidenomics. Uh, and ministers think that is a big mistake, as they would. Andrew Griff, the science minister, spoke to Times Radio on this theme on Friday. They don't have a plan, as we've said for a long time, that you know a Labour government would take us straight back to square one. I mean, the truth is inflate, uh, in interest rates were rising well before Rachel Reeves ran off to the US, was impressed by the idea of spending lots of public money, taxpayers' money, on plans that they hadn't costed, hadn't put together properly. And the fact that those plans are now unravelling just shows how foolish it would be and how expensive for taxpayers were they to get into power. That was the Science Minister Andrew Griffith. Well, why then is Keir Starmer so keen to follow Joe Biden's example? I'm joined now by Sarah Elliott, spokeswoman for Republicans Overseas UK and chair of the Hamilton Society. Hello, Sarah. Hello. And Claire Ainsley, who was executive director of policy for Keir Starmer and now works at the Progressive Policy Institute, which helped organise that trip to America for Labour candidates we were speaking about just a little bit earlier. Morning, Claire. 
Morning, Patrick. Now, Sarah, I'll start with you. Is it wise for the opposition leader to put all of his eggs in a democratic basket? I was talking before to Kirsty McNeil, who's a Labour candidate. If the polls are right, she will be a Labour MP after the next election. And she admitted it's worth preparing for Donald Trump as well. But Labour uh, have put a lot of time and effort into cultivating relationships with Democrats. Are they, are they wise to have done so? Well, I mean, it's anyone's game. It's, the polls are very close. Trump is edging Biden in um, polling, just a little bit outside of the margin of error. And However, you know, we have this very damning DOJ report about Biden's memory and his cognitive abilities. And I and 85 percent of the United States now in a recent poll since the DOJ report have said that they think Joe Biden is too old to be president. So I think they need to cover their bases and it could be a Trump presidency. Um, and it, he's looking like he's likely to be the nominee. However, I don't think it's a good idea to follow his economic agenda he is 20 points behind Donald Trump in the polls when it comes to the economy. And all of Biden's excessive government spending has led to a 40-year high of inflation, at, uh, which was actually lower than it was here in the UK. But it is still very damaging, and the inflation has compounded costs for Americans, which is why he's failing on the economy, according to the American people. Now, Claire, inside and outside of Keir Starmer's office, you spent a lot of time pondering the same questions that Joe Biden and his advisers have. Namely, how do the centre-left reconnect with voters they've lost, particularly those in de-industrialised areas, be that the Red Wall or the Rust Belt? And you heard from Sarah there about Joe Biden's economic agenda and the fact that voters aren't necessarily thanking him for spending lots of money in states like the ones I just mentioned. But the Labour Party have drawn a lot of inspiration from those ideas. Maybe that's now up for debate, given they've uh, junked a lot of the 28 billion green agenda. But what can the Labour Party learn then from the failure of Bidenomics to reap electoral rewards? Well, we, it remains to be seen as to whether there will be electoral rewards, but it's certainly true to say that American voters, particularly working class Americans of all ethnicities, um, in fact, it's not just white working class voters, the Democrats are also facing a problem in falling support amongst Hispanics, black Americans and other groups. So uh, I think it remains to be seen whether there will be an electoral benefit, but it is absolutely true that Bidenomics is not landing with working Americans in the way that the Democrats need it to if they are going to pull off a victory later this year. And of course, there are uh, concerns about Biden as a candidate himself. But the biggest issue, I think, is, is that people are not feeling the headline performance of the economy. And I, I would disagree that uh, inflation in the US is a result of government spending. We've certainly seen higher inflation over here. We haven't seen anything like any of the kind of infrastructure investment. So Overall, I think infrastructure investment is a, is a good idea and is where this kind of centre-left governments are pitching at. But it obviously needs to be calibrated and pitched uh, in a way that is going to actually help contribute towards growth. And it isn't a substitute for policies that are going to land in the pockets of voters in time for election day. So there is work to do in the US and the UK, I think. And do you think that's the key point, Claire? The, the feeling it in your wallet or in your pocket? Because that's the very conversation I had with a, a senior Labour strategist the other week, asking about these very questions, you know, what happens if the US electorate reject Bidenomics? What can you learn from that? And their response was that, well, Joe Biden hasn't done enough to sort of redistribute wealth or to people feel like the, the policies he's talking about, the massive sums of money he's talking about, actually impact them. You know, it's all very well and good talking about a trillion dollars of green infrastructure investment in the abstract. But if you're not really feeling that or you're not one of the 300,000 people who's got a new job in, in one of these industries, it's not going to mean very much, is it? That's right. And the infrastructure investment, I believe, is a good idea in principle, but it is not a substitute for people actually feeling better off in terms of what they can buy and what they earn. And that is what voters are looking for. So I don't think you have to have an either or, but you can't pretend that these abstract notions of 
clean energy or frankly inputs are the same as people feeling better off and if you then have an opposition which is or, or in our case it's the incumbents offering tax cuts even if that's not what you've asked for right now at least it's something that is meaningful so I think what Labour strategists have to draw from the um, Biden experience is not to chuck out the notion that the state needs to invest in inf infrastructure because over here we've seen we haven't seen the kind of investment we've needed to kind of grow the economy but not to think that that is a substitute for real policies that are going to be benefit people by bringing down costs and increasing their wages. That's really really interesting Claire. I mean Sarah listening to that the striking thing is these economic questions are really tricky for the Democrats. People aren't feeling the benefits in their wallets. If it's Donald Trump who manages to capture that spirit of frustration, how do you think the Labour Party should approach that relationship? I know uh, from speaking to people close to him that David Lammy is putting a lot of time into courting people like Condoleezza Rice and Mike Pompeo, senior Democrats who know the lay of the land and in Pompeo's case, Donald Trump's mind very well. You know, what? how do you envisage that relationship between a Starmer government and a Donald Trump government? Listen, they've got to stop the nasty rhetoric about Donald Trump and his team and being racist and being this awful human being. It's realpolitik now. You know, reality will set in for Keir Starmer and, the, and his team. And the United States is the best ally to the United Kingdom. We are more closely united on national defense and security than any other countries, than any other pairing in the world. And we are the defenders of the free world and the West. And we have to get along. And we do get along. I think our leaders tend to overlook these petty differences once they're in power because of how important the relationship is. But they, you know, David Lammy can't run his mouth off like he likes to do and, and call names. There's none of that anymore. You have to be much more diplomatic and mature and and approach it as this is our this is our best friend in the world you know as it comes to national security and it is an increasingly dangerous world out there so they they will i think reality will hit them but they should be courting the trump team as much as the biden team and um and also i think in terms of the economy i'm just going to say one more time they cannot hike up government spending to these terrible levels when you know the country itself is at um the debt is at 96 percent of gdp here in the uk that will raise interest rates that'll keep people out of the housing markets and it will raise groceries um and and gas prices and petrol etc and that is why the the working class will feel the pain because when you do stuff like that. Well, that's all we got time for on today's edition of Politics Without the Boring Bits. Remember, Matt Chorley's away. I'll be with you all week. In the meantime, make sure you like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to get in touch, email matt at times.radio. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.